1: Welcome to the Total Soccer Show and the first of our World Cup group stage previews. Yes, today we're focusing on Group A, where hosts Qatar have entered the fray. But do they have the quality to become a knockout mainstay? We'll also talk about Ecuador, who'll need Eda Valencia to score if they're to make it to the next stage of this draw. And in this group, representing the African locale... We'll turn our attention to Senegal. It'll be up to Sonia Mane to lift morale. And will we mention their most recent AFCON triumph? Yes, we shall. And rounding out this group, it's none other than the Netherlands. The free-time finalists will be on hot form when they grace the Doha Sands. Oh, kind of a rhyme. With Louis van Gaal giving out the commands, they'll likely have Graham Rutherford as one of their kit stands. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today to talk all things Group A is a man who's played Roughly the same amount of minutes this season as Gareth Bale, but has far fewer trophies to show for it. Taylor Rockwell, hello. Hello and welcome. Um, Taylor Rockwell, <laughs> is that you? Uh, it is, but now I'm being Dutch, yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> yes, I'll have a and a pancake. Thank you. Is that where we go here? <laughs>
2: yeah, I think so. I think that works for me. Uh, hi, Ryan. I-, I appreciate you being properly thrown off by my attempt to speak Dutch. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, I mean, you didn't speak Dutch. You just put on a strange accent to be
2: fair. I said hallo and welcome and <laughs> "bedankt." I had bedonked ready too. That's the, Those are the words I had. Very, very
1: good. Taylor, <laughs> welcome. You'll be covering the Netherlands in this episode, suffice yeah. to say. Indeed. indeed. Uh, let's hear from a man who enjoyed watching a very talented British player snatch a late goal and bring his team glory against the odds this weekend. But that's enough about Michael Lise's 93rd minute goal for Crystal Palace at West Ham. Joe Lowry, how are you doing today?
3: Oh man, what a goal that was. Crystal mm. Palace, I couldn't believe my eyes. Yep. Uh, genuinely, Ryan, I've been so wrapped up in all the MLS stuff that happened this week, I have no clue what happened in the Premier League other than I assume Christian Pulisic didn't do much of anything for Chelsea because that's where we are right now either way yes it was a fun game that I'm actually going to rope us into now back to MLS Cup it was a fun match a really really insane thing to be there to witness in person Graham and I did the show afterwards on, on Sunday morning it was a blast and I am stoked to get our World Cup coverage started
1: As am I. And listener, check back in the feed and listen to the MLS Cup review episode. It is a rather good episode, if I don't say so myself. Let's hear from the man who was on that episode. He is ready for this one. Like Unai Emery was was ready to embarrass Eric Ten Hag this weekend. I can't read, Graham Rutherford.
4: (laughs) No, you you can't. It seems like you can't, uh, Ryan Bailey. And yes, (laughs) Unai Emery, he'd waited, what, three years for that opportunity to come back to the Premier League, show how good a manager he was. I'm on a similar boat to... uh, to Joe, in that I didn't see as much of the Premier League over the weekend as I normally do, because I was watching that MLS Cup game. My watching experience, very different to Joe's, I would say. Uh, Joe rubbing shoulders with the celebrities in Hollywood. Me, on my sofa, in my tracksuit bottoms, eating uh, popcorn. It was a match that very much deserved popcorn, but I am fully in World Cup mode. Now, I can't believe the World Cup starts in under two weeks. Normally, at this stage, you kind of have commercials on the TV and the build-up as well underway. I don't know if this is just me, but I haven't really seen any of that so far, maybe just because of the truncated season. Mm. So hopefully this will get people and myself in the mood for the World Cup, as I say, under two weeks now, and I can't quite believe it's just around the corner. Well, that's a good point to make, Graham. There is no weekend review today. I've tried to subtly
1: weave in some events from the weekend into our intros here. um, And instead, we are starting at a World Cup previews as we uh, as you're quite aware um the weekend review stands please blame FIFA for this because the World Cup as we record starts in 13 days and we do need to get hype for this thing but the point Graham I suppose is in previous World Cups in the summer with two weeks to go we'd all be mad for it but we've had yeah. we've had you know a, a Premier League weekend we had MLS Cup last weekend we've got another weekend of soccer this coming weekend as well it's hard to kind of get in the mood this time isn't it
4: Yeah, I mean, it should be illegal. This is all FIFA's fault. It's a bit like Christmas. I don't know if you guys feel this way about Christmas, but actually... The best bit about Christmas isn't really Christmas Day. It's the build-up to Christmas, and it's similar with the World Cup. Like, I very much enjoy that break between the end of the season and the start of the World Cup where you read all the review- reviews and you watch all the TV coverage, and as I say, there's adverts on TV, and uh, maybe this is a British thing, but you go into petrol stations and there's, like, World Cup promotions happening and there's there's players on Coca-Cola cans and everything. I haven't really seen any of that this time because I guess Christmas kind of trumps... The World Cup and the and the commercialism stakes and it's it's just going to be Santa over Leno Messi on the Coke cans. Um, I have
1: to say, here in Italy, the Coke cans very much have national flags on them. I've had Iran many times. I've not had England once yet. Afraid to say.
4: They're sending you a message.
3: Yeah, I was going to say, are. I think that says something about how England's going to do it. Yeah, around. you've got fatwa on you. We're going to talk about that later this week.
1: <laughs> you've got a
2: fatwa on you.
1: Oh boy, let's <laughs> skip past that one. And we're going to talk about Group A in this episode. We've got Qatar. Mr. Joe Larry's is going to tell us all about Qatar. Ecuador! Do you remember that song, Graham? <laughs> I've had it in my head for
4: all day, researching Ecuador.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a, a, a popular... Uh, 90s European dance track, which was called was it? It was by Sash. If you were to look it up, listen.
4: Yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, I'll be talking about Senegal, and uh, Chiller is going to adopt his Dutch accent for the entire episode to talk about the Netherlands. Uh, Sean Connery, Netherlands, like my accent. <laughs>
3: I think I've got to go. I think I have a thing that I had to get to, actually. All right. What's going on? Before
1: you go, Joe, we're going to start off by uh, going around the houses and talking about uh, both the nicknames of the national team we are covering in this episode and our own proposed nickname, uh, how you want to design this team for yourself. Let's call it that. So, Joe,
3: tell us about Qatar. Okay, so Qatar's real nickname, the actual nickname for this international team, everyone's favorite team, I should add uh-huh, as well. Uh-huh. Man, I everybody's gonna love what I have to say about Qatar. It's them are the Houston the Astros.
2: Everybody loves them.
3: Yes, very true, Taylor. Uh, is is the Maroon. So that is their nickname. Uh, anybody want to guess why? That's their nickname. Very creative, very clever here. Graham, do you wanna guess why they're called the Maroon? Um they're big Hearts fans. Yeah. That's I believe that's the reason Joe, That's it. That's Joe, is
2: it, is it because when they st- take your passport, so you have to build stadiums there, you are marooned in the country? Is that why?
4: I knew this was, was going to get dark quickly. <laughs> oh, yeah. Joe, Joe yeah.
2: Is, this it, is... is it because
1: Adam Levine's been naturalized? <laughs> uh,
3: all of these. This is just a taste, listeners, of what was going on in our Slack chat before this whole show started. So I'm glad at least some of this carried on. No, it's because of their jerseys. Everyone already knew that, but your answers were way funnier than what I was going to get to. Either way, they're called the Maroon. The, the nickname that I'm giving them, the, the official TSS-branded, copyrighted, trademark nickname is the club team. Because they kind of play like a club team, and we'll talk more about why that is later. We've talked a bit about that in the past, but suffice it to say they've played a lot of games together and all are coming from the same place. Okay,
4: very good Graham nicknames. So Ecuador, their official nickname is uh, Latri, very similar to I guess Mexico's with El tree and similar uh, explanation.'re they're, they're known as latri due to the, the the tree color of of yellow, blue and reds in the country's flag. So that is the pretty straightforward explanation for that one. The total soccer show nickname that I'm given Ecuador, though, is the Brighton team. So not only <laughs> are be. the three Brighton players in their squad, <laughs> but those three players, Moises Caicedo, Pervis Estepanan, and Jeremy Sarmiento, are very, very important to this team. And going even further than that, they kind of embody what it is that makes this very young team exciting. And obviously, I'll explain a little bit more about why Ecuador deserve your attention. So I'm going with the Brighton team. I'm also calling them the good badge team. So international crests aren't always very good, but Ecuador redesigned theirs last year, and it is lovely. There is a an NYCFC or Yankees element to it, and it's all kind of like intertwined. All the elements are intertwined. And the home shirt is very nice as well. Nothing too fancy, just... Very classic. Of course, I was going to bring up kits within the first yeah. minute of talking about my team. The Ecuador kit is uh, is also one of the, the. the it's, I was going to say it's one of the few, it's the only kit at this World Cup made by Marathon. So I find that very satisfying as well. Hang on, so Graham. I've got a few nicknames for them. Does
1: their kit have a sash
4: on it? Um, sometimes it does. Not for this World Cup, though. It's just very plain sort of yellow with blue trim. As I say, it's nothing kind of uh, spectacular, but it's just it just ticks all the boxes, okay. and that badge is fantastic. I was just wondering if the song by Sash Ecuador had more meaning. Oh uh, dear. Yeah,
1: we'll see. We'll see. Um, I'm going to talk about <laughs> Senegal for a second. They are, of course, the lions of Taranga, and a Taranga is a, a word in the language Wolof, which is the Senegalese language. It means, uh, roughly translated good hospitality. So this is kind of the essence of the people in Senegal. Good hospitality is a nod to the nation's heritage and to their way of life. Um, and good hospitality and friendliness, of course, encapsulated in their legendary player El Hadji Juf, uh, who was a very nice man.
2: <laughs> also, the lions of good hospitality sounds like we will be pleasant to a point.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't push us, basically, <laughs> is what we're saying here. Um, the, the, the TSS nickname I'm going for is slightly more boring than the Brighton team and the club team. Uh, Africa's Biggest Hope, I'm calling them, because I believe in this tournament, where we have Tunisia, Morocco, Cameroon, and Ghana joining Senegal from CAF, from the CAF region, I believe they are by far the strongest of those teams. I shall get into that shortly, and I shall get into much more
2: about Senegal. But first, Taylor. Mm-hmm. Netherlands. They got a bunch of nicknames. I'm not sure they go by any of them. Uh, There's Orange, there's Holland, which I guess is technically a nickname. Clockwork Orange, the Flying Dutchman. A lot of them seem like uh, media contrivances more so than their actual nickname. I've got two for you. Uh, One I will explain, one I will hold off on. The one I will explain, they're the Buffalo Bills. That's what I've got for you. Holland, the Netherlands, the Buffalo Bills. Uh, Because... Uh, The Buffalo Bills are in a small city built around football. Uh, The Netherlands, a small country built around football. The Bills lost four straight Super Bowls. The Netherlands, as Ryan has already alluded to, lost two straight in the 70s, another in 2010. But recently, the Bills have been much better, more consistent, have the pieces in place to challenge for a championship. Ditto the Netherlands, which will eventually lead me to their second nickname, Voorstapper Overlude, but I will explain that one later on.
1: Oh, you're leaving us there. I, I was just—I'm just picturing um, Netherlands fans jumping onto tables from great heights. Is that
2: something they do? I mean, I, I think they absolutely should now. I think we need to get. I can't imagine. Two different groups of people, more different groups of people than the Dutch, who are, I think, famously very straightforward. I feel like when people think of stereotypical (laughs) Germans, they're actually thinking of the Dutch. So the idea of Dutch people watching Bills fans jump through tables itself would be hilarious. I'm sure the Dutch would do it with perfect angles and very well-engineered ways of doing it to break the table effortlessly without causing themselves any bodily harm.
1: Wonderful stuff. Um, Let's hear a bit about the story of our respective teams heading into Qatar. And what better team to start with, Joe Larry, than Qatar itself. Uh, Their rich and compelling history summarized, please.
3: Yeah, so (laughs) I'm going to forward people back to the episode of Soccer 101 that we did about this Qatar team a lot throughout this preview. I'll, I'll just say it up front right now. I think that was a good episode and it provided some useful context about this team. They don't have this storied soccer history but they have been, in large part because they were awarded this this World Cup you know, more than a decade ago, they have been preparing pretty heavily for this moment to not get embarrassed on the international stage. And and I, I really don't think they're going to. So the story of this team, they play a lot of games together. Like I mentioned back with my nickname, the club team. They qualified automatically for World Cup because that's what World Cup hosts do. But they played in UEFA World Cup qualifying. They played in uh, Copa America recently. They played in the 2021 Gold Cup which I think a lot of our U.S. listeners might remember from that tournament. It was Qatar against the U.S. men's national team in the semifinals of that competition. Qatar made a little bit of a run, and they've showed well at certain points, both in Asia. They played friendlies in, in July, August, September. They already had one in November, I believe, and have another one scheduled for later this week against Albania. Many of their players play in Qatar, and this is sort of tied into the to the club team aspect. So a lot of them play for Al Saad in, in the Qatari Stars League. So they get reps together at club level and then at the national team level. Like I said, I kind of glossed over it, but teams, most teams weren't playing friendlies in July on the men's national team side. Most teams were not playing friendlies in August. Most teams aren't even playing friendlies in November, although there are a few of them that are doing so. A lot of teams played in September because that's when the international window was. But Qatar has the ability with literally everyone in the World Cup pool playing in the domestic league. They have the ability to draw those players out, to play games with them on the international stage under Felix Sanchez, who I'll talk about more later on. So they have the advantage of being able to do that kind of stuff, to gel and to play together. They've been around this group of players for a long time, even dating back to time in in the academy in Qatar. So this team can play, right? The U.S. beat them 1-0 at the Gold Cup in the semifinals, as I referenced earlier. Qatar almost took the lead in that game. Qatar was, for stretches, the better team in that game. Granted, not the U.S.'s first-choice group after the Nations League. But Guitar has quality. They're not world beaters. They're 50th in the ELO ratings, but they they do have that advantage of playing together. They do have some ability, and they have a very defined way of playing, which I do think can be useful in a tournament like this. So I I don't know. I don't really expect, I guess, to, to get ahead of myself slightly here. I don't really expect them to get out of this group, but if people are expecting Guitar on the field to just roll over, I think they are barking up the wrong tree.
1: OK, Graham, uh, Ecuador took the fourth and final automatic qualification spot mm-hmm. in Conmebol on their way here. What else did they do?
4: So this is Ecuador's first appearance at the World Cup since 2014 because they, they failed to qualify for Russia 2018. And the reason I'm mentioning that that failure to qualify is that uh, kind of prompted a bit of a rethink for the national team. They also had a disappointing Copa America in 2019. So after those two disappointments, they they kind of had a reset and up until then they ha- they had this core of experienced players who had achieved some success at world cup level so Qatar they qualified for 3 out of 4 world cups between 2002 and 2014 before then they hadn't actually qualified for any world cups so while in recent times we kind of got used to uh, to uh, Ecuador being at, at world cups that is kind of a recent a recent thing so they had this core of experienced players, and, and some of those players were were recognisable names. So that was players like Antonio Valencia, Christian Naboa, Felipe Casado, those sort of guys. But after 2018, the, the focus was placed on building a new team, which may sound like quite a similar narrative to another national team that failed to qualify for the, the 2018 World Cup, <laughs> if you get what I'm uh, getting at there. But uh, Gustavo Alfaro, Alfaro, who is the, the manager he takes over in 2020, and he immediately set about bringing in younger players into the national team. And, and that produced immediate results. Somewhat surprisingly, I don't think many people expected Ecuador to get out of common ball qualifying, certainly not to finish fourth, but that's, that's what they did. And that was the, the last automatic qualification, qualification place in common ball. So that, that was quite the overachievement given that they qualified well ahead of teams like Colombia, Chile, Paraguay, who you could argue all have more talented squads and, and more pedigree at world cup level. And, um, this is a young team. It's the youngest team to qualify from COM the Ball. And it's a team that scored a lot of goals in qualifying. And, and in fact, Brazil were the only team to score more goals in common ball qualifying than, than Ecuador. And they had some impressive wins over Uruguay and Chile away from home. They also beat Colombia about a year ago, 6-1 in a game, which is obviously quite uh, quite notable. So this is a team that has shown they can produce big results against high-quality teams. Um, and they shouldn't be taken lightly at the World Cup, even if they are one of the in one of the lower pots in, in this group. They, they don't have the pedigree of some of the other South uh, South American nations but they've shown under Alfaro that they they can produce big results I have to mention kind of the biggest story about this team heading into this World Cup which isn't really anything to do with results on the pitch so there was a controversy around their qualification and um, the possibility until fairly recently that they wouldn't be at the tournament at all. So the synopsis of this story, and this is quite a long one, so I'm going to try and keep this brief, but the synopsis of it is that the, the Chilean federation brought a complaint to FIFA that Ecuador had used an ineligible player during qualifying. And that player was Brian Castillo. He he played eight times in qualification, so quite a, a big claim. You know, he's, he's an important part of that team. And basically the claim from Chile was that Castillo was in fact born in Colombia and that he'd been using a falsified birth certificate and passport to play for Ecuador. Um, So as I say, a a serious complaint, Chile wanted Ecuador thrown out of the World Cup and they wanted to be sent to Qatar in Ecuador's place, their argument being that if both the games against Ecuador had been forfeited, Chile win both those games 3-0, they would rise up to fourth place in the qualification table, they would get that automatic spot. Um, Ultimately, FIFA didn't buy Chile's argument. It did go to the court for arbitration for sport and this was this was only settled a, num- a number of weeks ago. This was this was this is fairly recent. Um, the dust hasn't really settled on this, so there was uncertainty over Ecuador's place at this World Cup until very late in the day. But they will be there, and they will play, much to Chile's disgruntlement. And I do think Ecuador have the potential to be a surprise package at this World Cup.
1: Mm, that's interesting. Um, this is a, a question to put you on the spot, Graham. But would you have rather seen Chile or Ecuador in this group?
4: I quite like Ecuador. I mean, Chile, it feels like they're going through a bit of a transition now. I know they had a strong team in the past where they won the Copa America and, and, and have qualified for World Cups, but you look through a number, of their, a number of their big players, it feels like Ecuador are very much the future. I mean, one player I'm going to come on to talk about a little bit later, Moises Caicedo. I think he's going to be a superstar over the next two, three years. I think if he has a big World Cup, he potentially gets a, a massive move to a, a big six Premier League, Premier League team or even one of the big Spanish teams. That's how good I think he is. So even though Ecuador maybe don't have the, the the traditional pedigree of Chile, there's a lot to like about this team, and I think they've got players that are going to get better over the next few years.
1: Excellent stuff. All right, so far, so good in group. A quick turnaround on Senegal's story. Uh, as I mentioned, they're coming into this uh, tournament quite strong, having won the 2021 AFCON was it 21 and they played it in 22? Yeah, that's right. Uh, at the, the most recent AFCON there they was. The, the, the thank you very much. Stuff. I got it out in the end. There we go. Uh, so that was in February, of course. Now finalists in 2019. By odds, by the bookies odds, they are the second strongest team in this group. Uh, in fact, they are 80 to 1 to win the tournament outright, or plus 8,000 on American line odds. Uh, the implied probability there being 1.2% that they're going to win the tournament. So don't put your mortgage on that by any means. But this is a strong team. Uh, they eliminated Mosala's Egypt to reach this tournament. After winning their group in the very, very brutal Caf qualification process, uh, they have twice qualified for the World Cup, and most uh, most successfully, they reached the quarterfinals in 2002 when they were captained by Aliou Cisse, their current manager. More on him later. Uh, they also reached, uh, well, they only made it to the group stage in 2018 in Russia. Uh, you might remember a slightly controversial or interesting circumstances in Russia for Senegal. It was Colombia and Japan who went through in their group. Uh, um, Senegal had the same record as Japan. Goals for, goals against, points. But Japan went through on fair play points. Um, to quote the movie Clueless, that was way harsh, tai. uh Yeah, but that's <laughs> another story. And hopefully they have a little less trouble going through. Uh, Taylor's a Clueless fan. Love to hear it. Love to hear it. Of course. Um, and as I mentioned, Aliou Cisse, their manager is both very popular and very experienced. He's arguably the biggest strength in this team. And I'll get onto him a little later. And I'll get onto also their wrath of experienced players they have a lot of top tier experienced players in this team i'm very excited about seeing this team in terms of the issues i think i've fallen into the trap that many of us do when we're researching and doing these previews that, i think this team's wonderful yeah and uh, <laughs> yeah so it's, it's been hard to find anything too negative uh like uh sally who who was their left back who was very good at the afcon final hasn't got a club at the moment he was at nancy in france he's 33 but it's uh Balotori from milan who's probably going to fill in for him so I wouldn't even call that an issue. Uh, One interesting fact I'll give you about Senegal is that it's a majority Muslim country. They have had no stance on the controversies uh, associated with Qatar. Idrissa Gay, um, he reportedly refused to play a game for PSG. You might remember a little while ago uh, for wearing a rainbow symbol on his shirt. Uh, Reportedly, he received a standing ovation at his first game in Senegal after this incident. As in Qatar, homosexuality is illegal in Senegal.
2: Senegal... Taylor, a little bit more liberal than the Netherlands. Tell us about their story. <laughs> uh, s- swiftly moving us on there. I appreciate that, Ryan. The Netherlands have an interesting story uh, in that, for me, they are a team that I keep sort of forgetting to mention as being very good. When people ask me who I think are the favorites who are most likely to win, I will say Brazil. I will say Germany. I say maybe Belgium. And then I completely forget that the Dutch are very, 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 very good. But that was not the case when qualifying began. Uh, six points from their first three games isn't necessarily terrible, but they had a four. Who lost to Turkey? That was really uninspiring. Uh, and speaking of really uninspiring, the coach at the time was Frank De Boer, uh, who was still in charge when the Euros kicked off, was not in charge about a week after uh, the Dutch were ousted from that tournament in a 2-0 loss to the Czech Republic in the first round of the knockout round. And DeBoer stepping down, it seemed like maybe the writing was on the wall there. Uh, here's the quote from that time. Key members at the Dutch FA and De Boer were due to meet to discuss the side's failings at Euro 2020, but De Boer said, quote, In anticipation of the evaluation, I have decided not to continue as national coach. The objective has not been achieved. That is clear, end quote. So Frank DeBoer steps away with them uh, in okay position, but they lost that opener, didn't have the best Euros. In comes the man, the myth, the legend, Louis Van Hall, out of retirement for a third go while battling uh, prostate cancer that has since come out. But he says he's energized by the team. The squad feels very much energized by him. They had a draw in his first game in charge, 1-1 away to Norway in World Cup qualification. Since then, they've played 14 matches. They've won 11. They've had three draws. They have not lost in a very long time, including in the Nations League, where they topped their group ahead of Belgium, Poland, and Wales. The Netherlands are in a very strong position. They have a strong team. The only downside is the absence of Jeannie uh, Wijnaldum, who's missing with injury. I saw many previews try to kind of build that up as, what will they do without him? He's such a key player. But the truth is they have so many good players. They have so much depth and talent that I think they will be okay without him. I'll talk more about how they will navigate the group stage without Genie Wijnaldum and with some of the other players they have. But for now, that is the story of the Dutch heading into this tournament.
1: Good stuff. And I do like seeing Louis van Gaal back on the sidelines. You may have a different opinion as a Man United fan, Taylor. but uh, Particularly over the uh, the health challenges he overcame as well. So I'm glad to see him
2: back. Oh, just always the opportunity for him to yell ridiculous things, for him to be very theatrical, (laughs) for him to substitute a goalkeeper in a penalty shootout. All reasons to be excited about Louis van Gaal in charge of the Dutch. Yeah. I'll be watching the Netherlands press
4: conferences as much as I'll be watching their games at this World Cup <laughs> uh, Make Definitely. sure, Greg you have Schechmaschekijm on your
1: bingo card for those, of course yeah. I'm
4: person. looking forward to watching his uh, horny team as he uh, <laughs> likes to call match United at points
1: <laughs> Alright, that's enough for this part Let's come back after the break We're going to talk about managers, tactics, rosters much, much more Stick with us
0: Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone?
1: the 2022 World Cup. Oh my gosh, it's nearly here. It's nearly here. Less than two weeks away, guys. Uh, Let's talk, Joe, about
3: Qatar and their manager. You mentioned they have a very specific style. Pray tell. Yeah, so Felix Sanchez is Qatar's manager. He's 46. He's Spanish. That tells you a little bit about what this team tries to do, but I'll, I'll get into more of that in just a second. Sanchez has been involved in Qatari soccer since 2006. So he coached in their very famous Aspire Academy, And is now in charge of the senior team and has been since 2017. So he's been around for a while with this current group. He led them to Qatar's first ever Asian Cup win back in 2019. And that kind of fits into the story of the team as well that I talked about earlier. With them actually becoming more of a force. uh, More of a, a light force on the international level. But this team is very well drilled. They play the same shape in pretty much every game. They played it in every game of Qatar that I've seen. It's a 3-5-2 of sorts in possession, and it's a 5-3-2 in defense. That's their main shape. You'll see that from teams at tournaments like this where they're going to be a little bit more defensive. They're going to be a little bit more compact defensively, and that does sort of describe Qatar's defensive approach. They don't like to extend too far forward, although they will against specific teams. They are happy most of the time to defend in their own half, and just to shift side to side to try to deny that space in the middle of the field and force teams into crossing the ball into the box where they can clear it with their three center backs. That, that 5-3-2 defensive shape, 3-5-2 attacking shape is their main approach. What I like so much about Qatar, and I'm hoping we get to see, let me rephrase that. What I like so much about Qatar's soccer team, and what I hope <laughs> we get to see at this particular tournament, yeah, like how I caught that one, is is it's a mix of, in possession, it's a mixture, a really good mixture of buildup and clean possession play and then some conservatism with the ball. So they are really entertaining to watch in possession, and I hope we get to see it against the better teams in this competition. I don't know how much we will, but they have a lot of quality in this team. They'll push their center backs forward. They'll play through the number six in midfield. They'll get the ball forward to their front line. I mean, there is a lot to like about this team, and they do a lot of these central combinations because they don't have any wingers. It's, it's the wing backs in this team that provide width, and they don't always send them all the way forward. You'll get a lot of really lovely combination play uh, from their attackers. So I do enjoy watching this guitar team play. I enjoyed watching the back of the Gold Cup. I don't know how much of that really fun, flashy stuff we're going to see at this tournament because of the fact that they are still, despite being the pot one team, maybe the worst team on quality in their group, probably the worst team in quality in their group. So I don't know exactly what this team's going to look like, but those are some of the building blocks that Felix Sanchez likes to use. Very good. How about those building blocks in Ecuador, Graham? How do they look?
4: So as I mentioned earlier, Gustavo Alfaro, he's the head coach of Ecuador. He is an Argentine and he took over in 2020. I also mentioned that. I looked through his coaching resume because he's not someone that I'm terribly familiar with. His coaching resume today is very Carlos Queiroz. That's how I would describe it. There is a lot of different teams on there mm-hmm. with his first managerial job coming all the way back in 1992. Uh, For context, I was born the year before that, so uh, Alfaro has been coaching pretty much as long as I have been alive. And as I say, he's coached a lot of teams, um, countless teams across South America. He was Boca Juniors manager in 2019, so that was perhaps the... The biggest job that he's had um, so far until this point, that didn't go so well for him. So he lasted just under a year and Boca Juniors fans were unhappy with what they saw as a lack of identity. Results weren't great either, but it was really the lack of identity that was the issue. But he's been much more popular with the Ecuador fans since taking over. And obviously a lot of that is down to results and the fact that Ecuador will be at this World Cup when very few expected them to get there. But Alfaro has this sort of straight-talking style that is very popular with fans. He is uh, very honest, and it kind of reminds me a little bit of a, a South American Ian Holloway or something like that. I mean, not not so much uh, of a farmer vibe about him, but in terms of how he will he will say things, he he. he He doesn't uh, pull his punches and he'll just say things how they are. In terms of his tactics and the way that he likes to set up his team, he has favoured a 4-4-2 shape over the last two years. It's not a rigid 4-4-2, and Alfaro has actually been using a 4-2-3-1 recently with Sarmiento playing at the 10, and it's possible that they could even play a 4-3-3 at this World Cup. He's been experimenting a little bit in some of the recent friendlies. Um, But 4-4-2 was the most common formation used through qualifying. Um, Until his appointment in 2020, I would say Ecuador were quite old fashioned in the way that they played so they were all about hitting the wings and being quite physical and that obviously worked relatively well for them until a certain point when they got into world cups and there was a little bit of a glass ceiling Above them. They still have that threat on the wings now, but I would say they're much more effective in transition now and they seem like a much more modern team. So they're an excellent counter attacking team. They're quick in possession, and I think Alfaro deserves a lot of credit for adapting their style and recognizing that the young players that are coming through are playing a very different way to the the previous generation of Ecuadorian players. And this this isn't solely down to Alfaro. I, Ecuador's actually doing, I was doing a bit of reading on this. Um, Independiente in Ecuador in particular are this club that just have this excellent youth academy and and they're doing a really good job of producing players who play that quick, physical, but technically excellent game, which is obviously very in line with what is in vogue across European football and and global football at the moment. So there's a good reason that big European clubs are increasingly looking to Ecuadorian young players and Alfaro has done a really good job of managing that generational transition and really bringing the national team up to date in terms of how they play the game.
1: Yeah, um, To ring the bell of Charlotte FC... Uh, Graham uh, Alan Franco one of the younger players in the Ecuadorian setup who came in to the inaugural roster and uh, was touted as uh, the the player who was going to take MLS by storm and he got loaned out because he was garbage (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
3: just so you know. I was wondering if you were going to add that bit or not because I was about yeah, to look up really making sure my point, I Ryan remember
4: Ecuador as the the new uh, you know the new source of excellent young players. Maybe he was an exception to the rule. Now he
1: was a very good player. I think maybe just uh, not the correct circumstances for him. To be very fair to him, Graham. Um, okay, fair enough. Um, Senegal. Let's talk about Senegal and their manager. I mentioned this, Elou Cisse, who you may remember as a defensive midfielder for Senegal back in the day. Uh, back in the day when you were like ten, Graham. In 2002. But um, when were you ten? No, you at 11, maybe. Ah, math. Uh, He led them to the 2002 (laughs) AFCON final. He led them to the 2002 World Cup quarterfinals as well. So 2002, a banner year for Senegal, very much under Cisse's captaincy. That earned him a move to England. He played in uh, Birmingham and Portsmouth. He was at PSG before that as well. He has been Senegal's boss since 2015, and he's been in the setup since 2012. He came on as an assistant coach for Senegal's Olympic run in 2012. So seven years with the same coach, gives this team stability that not many other teams in this competition um can can boast. Uh, there's a New York Times article about LUCC, Cisse, which I recommend listening to you take a look at, the subhead of which reads, "Aliou Cisse, one of the best of a new generation of African coaches, has reinvented Senegal's national team and given the country a new sense of patriotism. So Cisse at his disposal has got some very good players who I'll get onto a bit later. He's had some very good results. Uh, AFCON final, of course, bit of winning, winning the title back in February. And he's very much generating excitement in the homeland. Although... In terms of the style, I'm not sure excitement is one that I would use. Uh, he, he plays a 4-4-3, sorry, excuse me, a 4-3-3, the kind that you'd associate changer. with a defensive midfielder, I'd say. He's he's nicknamed El Tactico for his efficient but restrained approach to the game, says the New York Times. Um, so I don't think it's going to be any um, big press or inverted fullbacks or fancy stuff. It's going to be kind of... Gareth Southgate flavoured, if you will. Um, But, you know, Gareth Southgate flavoured very much with results and not switching to a back three whenever he feels like it. And interestingly about Cissé, like Antonio Conte, another player who did play defensive midfield at times, very strict with his players. He's uh, ensured that things are banned, like... um, Fancy watches and bling and clothes. He insists on humility, which comes back to that lines of Tarunga um, meaning and, and the ethos of the country. It's, it's the kind of thing where you see where Sadi Amani using a broken phone and donating um, money and, and clothes and resources to his homeland. Uh, very much the opposite of El Hadji who I mentioned earlier. But um, that's the kind of vibe that um, uh, Coach Sissé likes to run with this Team. I'll hand the reins to the Netherlands and Taylor Rockwell.
2: Uh, I will take those reins, but then I will ask you a question. Am I correct in saying Please. that al Hajjouf's nickname was The Camel? Cuz he spat, yeah? yeah. That's Could what I spat. thought. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Not yeah. the uh, the most uh, uh kind of individuals, but yeah. it well, that
1: he, way. he used to like not- drive around Sunderland in like all, um very expensive clothes in like um Cadillac uh, Escalades and stuff. Very much not what um Aliosese would would like from his
2: players. I like that we're using him as the uh, barometer for where Senegal are going, and I like where Senegal are going as a result. Uh, to the Netherlands we shall go uh, to, once again, talk about Frank DeBoer. Why not? Uh, because uh, when Frank de Boer left the gig, part of the reason why there was so much frustration with him and his tenure was that he had... Gone away from that very definitive Dutch 4-3-3, the the system that they had perfected, some would say, uh, in the 70s with Johan Cruyff. Uh, And so there was this consternation about why would you go away from that? Why would you play in a back three? It's not getting the best out of this team. That's exactly what happens in that game against the Czech Republic in the knockout round. They're in a 3-4-1-2. They lose 2-0. They're not very competent. They're not very confident. In comes Louis van Gaal. He reinstitutes the four-three-three that we all knew was going to be the thing that he would go with because that's what he he utilized when he was a, a club coach to, to great success with with Ajax, with Barcelona, less so with Manchester United. Uh, and he does for a few games. And even though they're winning those games, they beat Turkey six to one. They score plenty of goals, but there are still erratic results. There's a, a very tight finish over. I think it was like Moldova one 0 that was maybe not what they were looking for. Then there's a draw where they continue to kind of struggle in that system them, Louis van Gaal decides 5-3-2 it is, 3-4-1-2 it is, and that's what they've gone with since then. And so we have that same criticism that we had uh, towards Frank de Boer, but even towards Louis van Gaal in 2018, that he was going with a back three that goes against type for the Dutch. But it has worked really effectively uh, after those kind of up and down patches where they were getting good results, but they weren't maybe playing the best soccer. Uh, he has two friendlies. It's a 4-2 win over Denmark and a 1-1 win or draw over Germany, which felt like a win, I'm guessing. Uh, and at that point, that's when he goes with that 3-4-1-2. He has stuck with it since. The very next competitive game is in the Nations League, where they beat uh, Belgium 4-1 away. And that sort of feels like a statement game for this team, and that's how they've stuck since then. And it really does play into the strengths of the the pool because they have got some depth at centre-back. More on that when we talk about the players, but for now what you need to know is that Louis van Gaal is in his third stint as Dutch manager, has got them back in a back three, and has got them winning games, winning their Nations League group, advancing to the uh, Nations League finals. And I think the goal here would be to make a very deep run, if not make the final once again. And Taylor, this might be a bit early in the episode to ask, but on that deep run, mm. what's the what's the
1: feeling in the Netherlands? Do they feel like they they're going to be a final four team here? Do they feel like they're going to go all the way? It
2: feels very conflicted, sort of muted is is my takeaway. Like there was a quote from Virgil van Dijk kind of saying he doesn't like playing in a back 3, that it's not the system that he prefers to play in, and then I think begrudgingly said, but you can't really argue with the results, like I understand what the manager is doing. I think there is this like all right, well, you know, it's working now, so we'll go with it. It's sort of Ronald Koeman at Barcelona when he changed that system. It's like, okay, we'll go with it as long as it's working. But it does feel like as soon as it's not, it will be uh, uh, an easy uh, thing to attack him on if things don't go well. So I think it's sort of muted optimism, but there are some things about this team, uh, especially on the attacking side of things, that I think people aren't quite sure if, if Louis van Gaal has figured them out and they're going to be this this uh, unstoppable force or if some of their old vulnerabilities will come back into play uh, as the tournament progresses. So I think it's cautious optimism is what I'll say. Okay. They're all sitting on a big orange fence. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, very good. A very visible uh, orange fence, you got to say.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, Graham, by the way, I, I mentioned uh, w- whether you are a kit stan or not of the mm. Netherlands team. I've always loved the orange. Orange is my favorite color, in fact. Uh, w- what do you make of their offerings this time around? I, th- I don't think they're classic Netherlands shirts, but
4: I no. like so the home one, I'm struggling to understand what Nike has done with the color orange on that kit, because I, I'm totally with you, Ryan. I actually own a couple of, of ne- Netherlands shirts. That that color is just so iconic. I love seeing the fans all decked out in, in orange at tournaments as well. But it's almost like a little bit of a gold, mm. golden orange that mm. they're using on this kit, and it's not. it's not my favorite, I have to say. Burnt orange? What would we call that? I don't know. It's like it, it looks. It's
2: meant to look shiny, almost. It really is not. You want it yeah. to just be that like that orange, we're, we're about our business, there's no gloss, there's no flash here, we just do our job and do it well. Uh-huh. That's not quite what this it, one's conveying.
4: It looks like a, a set of orange velvet Yes, it does. It, it yes, like. it does.
1: All right, now I really don't like
2: it. <laughs> <laughs> Your crushed velvet jersey, I don't think, is what you're looking for for breathability or style. Maybe style. Maybe oh, style.
1: Oh boy. Maybe. We shall see. Who, who knows what the kids are up to these days, tete. Um let's Joe. take a quick break. When we come back, let's hear about <laughs> let's hear about the roster. Let's hear about some key players, some notable missions, etc., and so on. And also from each of you, a very specific prediction about your team. Back shortly.
2: Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our World Cup Group A
1: preview. By the way, I don't think I said it at the top of the show. We're doing a live show in Brooklyn, (laughs) November 20th. Group A starts on November 20th. Coincidence? No.
4: Almost like we planned it.
1: (laughs) Almost like we planned it that way. Uh, Link in the description for the tickets there. Please come and hang out with us in New York City. It'll be a lot of fun. But for now, Joe, Qatar, roster, players, who might we know?
3: Yeah, so you're not going to know any of these players, okay. <laughs> just to be clear up front. Um, you might know one, and that's the one I'm going to spend the most time talking about. Actually, we might know a couple of these players. Listener, don't don't sweat it. Um, to be clear, for, for all of these rosters, I believe, the official squads have not been announced. And the official roster due date is not until, like, six days before the competition actually starts. So we couldn't really wait until the the official squads were released to make these previews. But I do have a couple of players... That will be in Qatar, barring any sort of last-second injury, and I cannot imagine that Qatar is going to let that happen. You have Akram Afif, who's the player I want to spend the most time talking about here. Taylor, I have no idea if you remember Afif from the Gold Cup uh, last summer. I don't expect you to. If you do remember him, you'll remember him as, first of all, the creative attacker with the fun hair. (laughs) Um, and And if you don't remember him, that's okay, too. But he is lovely to watch, like genuinely very fun to watch. Second forward, attacking midfielder type, he plays underneath Ali in in Qatar's 3-5-2 shape. Afif is everywhere when you watch this team play. He will drop down. He, he kind of does some Giovinco-y kind of stuff. When I think back to Toronto FC with Josie Altidore and Giovinco up front, he drops in probably more than Giovinco did with that team, and he's also a little taller, but he has so much of that technical quality, and he plays in a front two that I thought that was maybe a helpful comparison for people. He's 25 years old. He plays for Al Saad, as I mentioned earlier, in the Qatari League. He's very smooth on the ball. He's good enough to be playing, in my opinion, in the Champions League. Like He is good enough for a top-level European team. Now, the one bit here is he can get away with not doing as much of the defensive work, and he's not as maybe athletic as a lot of players at the top tiers of European soccer are. But because of the fact that Qatar play with that two-forward front, he can uh, drop and shift a little bit. Like, he would be one of the absolute best players in Major League Soccer tomorrow if he came into MLS. That's, that's how good I think Afif is. He did spend, unlike most of his countrymen, or, or most of the players in this squad, he spent time playing in Europe. That, that doesn't happen a lot for some of these Qatari players. He played in Belgium for a team that Qatar owned, like literally Qatar owned this, this Belgian team called Upen. He played there and he, he played, I think, nine games for Villarreal before going back to Belgium and then eventually back to Qatar. It wasn't a long stint, but it does say something, I think a little something about how Qatar views Afif and, and sort of about his ambitions. Watch him. You won't miss him when you watch this team play on, on November 20th because of the hair and because he's really good. So that's my first player. And then the other one is Karim Boudiaf, who's uh, number six. He's 32 years old. And I wanted to bring up Boudiaf because he was naturalized to represent Qatar. And that's been sort of a theme for Qatar as they prepared for this World Cup is bringing players into the country for long enough such that they can represent the nation by FIFA rules, which FIFA had to change literally because of Qatar. And, and I guess because of some other examples as well. But they were trying to bring in players to prepare them for this exact moment. And that's pretty much what they did. Budiaf is, like I said, a number six. He's a good player, a good mix of on-ball quality and some range. He'll be at the base of their midfield in that 3 5 2 shape in possession or the 5 3 2 in defensively. He's been in Qatar since 2010. So he's been playing for a long time after being born in France and playing his youth soccer in France. He's on the the ladder. He's in the latter stages of his career at this point, but I, I do think he's still an important player to this Qatar team. And like I said before, he is emblematic in a way of some of the approaches that Qatar have used to get themselves ready for this tournament. Excellent
1: stuff. Thank you very much, Joseph Lowry. Um, Ecuador, Graham, tell us about their their, their key players, uh, Alan Franco included, if you will.
4: (laughs) So Alan Franco doesn't make the cut in my list of key players, but Moises Caicedo, who I've already mentioned... He certainly does, um, and he is one of the the young players that very much embodies what is exciting about this Ecuador team. So obviously he has been excellent for Brighton this season, mm. and he could have a big World Cup for Ecuador as well. And it's just so important to the way that Ecuador move and quick transition, um, as I say, very much embodies the spirit of this team and the profile of the sort of young players that Ecuador is now producing. He's physical, he's mobile, he's technically able, he moves the ball quickly, um, he offers plenty on both sides of the ball so he offers that protection in front of the the back four but he's very good at recycling possession and then doing something with it Um, and Ecuador like to play with these high fullbacks one of whom I will mention as one of my key players they like to play with these high fullbacks and Caicedo is very much a key part of the supply line into those players so I think if you take Caicedo out of this team if he was to get an injury or something like that and would and miss this tournament which obviously we hope doesn't happen I think that would change the profile and the character of this Ecuador team entirely. So not only is he kind of the most obvious, he's probably the most recognisable name on, on this roster because obviously he's playing in the Premier League and he's he's drawing some attention in the Premier League. He's He is the core of this team. Another player who is playing in the Premier League, also for Brighton, is, is Pervis Estebanan. He's a very important player for Ecuador. So he plays on the left side of the defence. He's one of the flying fullbacks that I mentioned there. And those attacking runs from deep, they're just so important to the way that Ecuador get forward. And anyone who has watched La Liga in recent seasons will know how good Penan can be. only joined Brighton this season, only just starting to find form for them. He was the, the Cucurella replacement, but for anyone who's seen him play in La Liga, he played for two or three teams on loan, including Osasuna in La Liga you'll know how good that he can be. And a lot of Ecuador's attacks come from those wide areas, so it's important that they do have fast, aggressive, attack-minded fullbacks who essentially play as wingbacks even when they're in a back four, and Estebanan certainly fits the bill. Where there is a little bit of a weakness for Ecuador is against higher-caliber teams, they can be counter-pressed, and if they're se- sending two flying fullbacks forward, Esteban being one of them, then all of a sudden it can kind of leave them outnumbered at the back. But that that is the gamble that they're, they're making under Alfaro. They think they've got the players to make that that work. They've got very press-resistant players, Caicedo being one of them, Estepinan being another one. So that, as I say, that's the gamble they're making. And then Gonzalo Plata is another important player for Ecuador. So he plays for Real Valladolid. So I suspect some listeners maybe won't have seen him before, but he's, he's certainly a player to keep a, an eye on at the World Cup. He will play... There's a big caveat with Plata, which I'll come on to, but... He will, will play on the right side for Ecuador and he's just brilliant at playing in the in the half spaces. He's, he'll, he'll drop deep to help out when his team are having trouble against mid-blocks. Um, but he's got an excellent turn of pace and he's got a willingness to get forward. And he's just another player, similar to Estebanan, but on the other side, he just gives Ecuador such an effective outlet and um, his energy and directness is very dangerous, similar to Casado and Espinan. There's a, there's a common thread through these key players. Alfaro knows what he wants from these team, this team and these are the players that can make that happen for him. The caveat is I have to mention that Plata has a bit of an injury j- doubt due to a hip issue. Um, there is a bit of concern that he won't be included in the roster, but I've read some reports that if he's basically able to make it on a pitch he will be in that squad. Um, and at this moment Plata is actually Ecuador's only serious injury concern. So they've got a striker Yal Rocas and a defender uh, Roberto uh, Robert sorry Arbaloda. They will both miss out, but Ecuador can absorb those those absences. If they were to m- lose either Plata or Estebanan or Casado Casado certainly, that would be a much, much bigger loss. But those those are my three players that I think Ecuador can kind of, uh, they can pin their, their their style of play on and make things happen for them at this World Cup.
1: All right. It's sounding like a delicately poised group, by the way we're all describing our respective teams here. And at the end of this episode, I am going to ask you whether your team is going to go through to the knockout stages. So be prepared for that, gents. Uh, for now, um, I'll talk about Senegal's roster. Got a fella who plays uh, in the forward line called Mane. Ever heard of him? Greatest soccer player in Senegal history. Yeah, that guy. Yeah. All-time top scorer for Senegal with 34 goals in 93 appearances since 2012. Uh, He's been... Uh, perceived in his homeland as someone who's better for club than country. Uh, He missed a penalty in 2017 that eliminated uh, Senegal from AFCON. But he very much is the man who is taking this team to the next level and will very much be relied upon at this tournament one would expect. Uh, The number nine role is uh, from Boulay Dia, who's going to be playing that, who's playing in Serie A with Salah Natana at the moment. Uh, He recently told, this is a, a snippet I found in The Guardian, he recently told La Gazzetta dello Sport here in Italy that he didn't have a football hero growing up because his family had no TV and therefore could not watch matches, which I thought was a pretty cool um humbling quote from uh, Dia, who's playing in the number nine slot in the World Cup. Pretty cool. Uh, the uh a lot of these players you will have heard of um from England in the Premier League, Edouard Mendy in goal and Kaladu Kulabali at Chelsea, both of those at Chelsea, of course. Non-police Mondi at Leicester, Cheku Koyati, who is now at Forest. Is that right, Graham? Yeah. I think he is, yep. Uh, Yep. Yes, I believe so. He moved. Idrissa Gueye, of course, at Everton, and Ismail Assar at Watford, Watford winger. And on the continent, you would have heard of uh, Abdu Diallo, of course, at RB Leipzig as the centre-back, and Fodu Balotoro, who I mentioned earlier, left uh, the the Milan full-back. Lots and lots of top-tier talent there, lots and lots of experience in this team. You're combining that with a manager with experience, which is why I think this Senegal team are going to be a big threat here. So you're going to see... Kulabali and Diallo as centre-backs, which is pretty strong, and Balatori as a full-back. Uh, the other uh, right-back would be Yusuf Sabali, who plays at Real Betis. Uh, Pape Matisar in midfield. He's on the books at Spurs. Uh, he's on loan in France, I believe, at the moment. And you've got Nopolis Mendy as defensive midfielder in this team, and Gaillet on the left of midfield. And at front line of Ismail Sar, Baludia, and Sadio Mane, that is probably going to cause some problems for some defenses in this group, I would imagine, if uh, if uh, the uh, formation permits. So, I think Senegal going to be pretty good. Taylor, Netherlands, they're going to be pretty I think, good? Yeah? I think they sure.
2: definitely will be. That would be my hope, at least. Uh, I should, uh, Ryan, you did a good job of plugging the live show. Uh, Joe already plugged Soccer 101, the episode we did about Qatar. I should say, if people are new to the show... We have that separate podcast, Soccer 101. We answer your basic questions and then some more advanced ones. But in there, I think episode 112 was about why the Dutch wear orange, even though there's no orange in their flag. Uh, So you can listen to that one and get even more prepared about the Netherlands and many other topics. As to this current Dutch team, as I mentioned, uh, they are a very strong team in that back three especially. And that relates to their original or the TSS nickname I gave them. They were the Buffalo Bills and they are Voorstapper Overlude, which is my probably incorrect uh, attempt to translate center-back abundance, because they have an embarrassment of riches at center-back, even playing in a back three. They've got Nathan Akay, they've got Virgil van Dijk, uh, Jurian Timber, Matthias de Ligt, Stefan de Vrij, so many world-class talents, so much so that uh, Daley Blint will likely be their left wing back. He's not even playing center-back for them anymore. Uh, But as with uh, Dutch team's maybe of the more recent past, it, it's sort of a really, really strong uh, potential squad from the defense, the midfield. It's like, okay, yeah, they've got some really good players. And then in the attack, you've got some head scratchers and some promising youngsters. And so I think that's why Louis van Hall has structured his team this way, that basically allows them to commit numbers forward, they can have one of those center backs step into the midfield to sort of Uh, screen and help with any sort of developing counterattack. Usually Virgil van Dyke will be the one to pop out. Uh, Sometimes it's Timber who will sit on an opposition uh, striker's back and just not let them turn. But then they attack in the channels, they attack with numbers through the middle, and they basically don't rely on any one player to be the main striker. Uh, It might be Memphis, it might be uh, Bergwijn, it might be Daniel Malin or Viktor uh, Janssen. But we would assume that there will be a lot of sort of positional chopping and changing uh, in there as people sort of flood forward to try to create opportunities. The couple of individuals I think are worth really focusing on because they have so much star power and some big names are maybe some lesser-known names that I think could be really important to this team. Uh, if they go with the 3-4-1-2, uh, you're going to have those two central midfielders who stay a little bit deeper in defense, will stay back a bit more, but then also obviously get involved in the attack. One of them will definitely be Frankie de Jong, even though he hasn't had the best of seasons with Barcelona this time round, Still such an important player for the Dutch. But the other... The <laughs> is a bit more up in the air. At times, it's been Martin De Roon. At times, it's been uh, Stephen Berghuis. Berghuis. I'm not quite sure how the Dutch are supposed to pronounce that one or how they do pronounce that one. But the one that I want to focus on... I said you should know Mr. Dutch accent. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I abandoned that one pretty quickly, didn't I? Uh, The one that I think (laughs) is worth noting or really worth paying attention to is uh, Koop Miners. I was not really familiar with him at all. He's a 24-year-old central midfielder for Atalanta, formerly of AZ. I think he is the one who is most likely to start alongside Frankie de Jong in the middle. Uh, he shields the defense well, but he likes to go hunting. He will definitely step out, especially if there's a moment when maybe the defense has stayed a little bit deeper. He has stayed deeper. Uh, the, the attack is going, and then they've lost the ball, and now there's this moment of transition. He will be the one to sprint 15 yards and close down. Uh, and if it seems like something is developing, a thing I noticed in the clips I watched, he is very good at that professional foul that isn't quite at the level of cynical, so it seems like it's a deliberate attempt to play the ball. Basically, he's very good at breaking up counterattacks without picking up that yellow card. Uh, Pep Guardiola probably uh, taking note of him for that ability. So I think he does a really good job of being a disruptor, but also doing the defensive side, then still getting forward in the attack. Uh, His shooting was not particularly great in the games that I watched, but I think he still gets involved. He still helps facilitate attacking play. The player who really gets involved in helping the attack is Cody Gakbo. That's the other one I think people should be uh, keeping an eye on. He is, I think, most likely to play as the central attacking midfielder in that 3-4-1-2. He's the one, which is odd because uh, TransferMarkt has him listed as a winger. He tends to play as a winger, but... Every preview I've seen has him as a central attacking midfielder, and the games I watched has him as a central attacking midfielder. Uh, I think the truth is that it's basically he is all of the above for the Dutch. Sometimes he's on the left. Sometimes he's on the right. Sometimes he's central. Sometimes he's a striker if they need to do that. Late in games, he'll be in a front two. Uh, In the game that they won 1-0 against Belgium, he was moved up in a 5-3-2 basically because he has the speed and physicality to be an outlet and to alleviate some of that pressure. So you'll see him in different areas. The reason why I think he's so interesting is because he's very, very good. He is not the finished product, in my mind. And what that means is that you'll have these sequences where he has incredible control, really good acceleration, he evades two defenders, picks his head up, sees the the teammate making that run on the outside, and then hits the ball 10 yards behind them, or 10 yards in front of them, or 5 yards over them. And every now and then, you see him do the whole thing, where he evades two defenders, megs somebody, goes around them, hits a Travella pass, around the defense in for a teammate, and then they score. And those moments are these... Just sort of like, oh, he could be world class. He could be that next big thing. But for every one of those, there are those moments of frustration. And so I think he's really fun to watch because you will have those like, what was he aiming for there sort of moments? And then you'll have those. Oh, right. He's going to be a world class player all in the span of five or 10 minutes. And so I think... If he can catch – if he can sort of harness that unpredictability, make it a bit more predictable, and just have some of those star-studded performances, I think that will be a big part of the Dutch going very far because, as I said, uh, Graham, I look forward to you uh, having uh, some insight into this one, but – he, he's so good at seemingly being trapped. It's like a running back when they have three players about to tackle them, and it's like, all right, well, that play's dead. And then suddenly they're away and they're still running. I don't know how they do it. It's Patrick Mahomes, if you want to go the quarterback. He finds a way mm. to sort of get out with the ball and then sometimes make amazing things happen, sometimes not.
3: Graham, time for you to yes and American football. I can't wait
4: to see where this goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just going to ignore the, all the American sporting references there and uh, compare him to a, a soccer player. He reminds me a little bit of uh, of Kai Havertz, when and I mean that in a good way. I know Havertz hasn't had the best season this year, but in terms of you don't really know what his position is, but you look at his you look at his qualities. He's six foot two. And he is lightning quick as well. He's got great co- close control, but he's got that physicality. He can cut in off the wing. You can hit him with a cross. He's decent in the air. And you just think all those qualities he really could combine to become like the complete centre forward, which is why I think there's there's so much excitement about him. And he was one of the players that was mentioned. He mm-hmm. was like with Manchester United in the summer when Man United were looking for a centre forward. He's not really that player just yet, but he, he could very realistically become that player. So I totally agree, Taylor. Cody Gakpo, for a good few years now with the Netherlands, they've obviously had a good core with players like Van Dijk and De Jong, but they've kind of been lacking, even with Memphis Depay, who's a pretty reliable goal scorer at international level, they've always, for a a while now, they've been lacking that world-class centre forward. It feels like Gakpo could potentially be that player, even if he's on paper playing out in the left,
3: he'll still provide that threat. One one thing for me on Gakpo, because I've seen a bit of him this season as well, he makes everyone else on the field look like, okay, let me back up. You know when you're watching youth soccer yeah. <laughs> and there's like one kid who is just a little bit further along in his physical development than everyone yeah. else? Gotpo makes, like that's what he looks like, playing against fully grown professional players who are like five years older than he is. He is He's on another level physically compared to the the opposition he's coming up against in the area divisi. He is really good. Um, and Taylor, even to go back to your point about him not being the finished product, which I, I do think is true. He's 23. He's still, I think, in a lot of ways, trying to adjust and, and figure out how to use his frame to the best of his ability. I would say, even just the fact that he's in position to have some of those wildly mm-hmm. unpredictable moments that don't come off means that he's a level above, right? I mean, how many players don't even get to those positions to misplay that pass? I know that sounds kind of uh, counterintuitive, but I would say the fact that he's in and around danger so much is the sign that he is an elite player. Not the sign that he maybe could eventually become one, but either way, still room to grow. Just just some thoughts on, on Gatpo because I think he's Yeah, really, I think really
2: all good. of that is fair, Joe, and I appreciate that distinction. I think the thing that like drew me to him, the reason why I wanted to focus on him, is because I, I do think in the summer we tend to have the kind of more breakout ones because you've got the summer window. We will have the January window, and maybe that is a bigger transfer window this time around because of the World Cup, but... I think Gakpo is one of those players that could very much come out of this tournament as a, if not household name, a, a very known, uh, hyped individual who now everybody is uh, is into. And when it will be another player that Manchester United could have had for 15 million or whatever. And now he goes somewhere else for 60 million uh, because I think he could be just the electric player for this Dutch team. They have so much talent. But as I said, it seems to me from watching their games, so much of the attack is numbers and just getting bodies forward in different areas and unexpected areas. Daly Blint on the left, somewhat. Dental Dumfries, I'll talk more about him later on, uh, on the right. Uh, and, and then you've got the midfielders bombing forward. You've got two uh, strikers who will split wide and allow Gakpo to run through. So there's a lot of variety to that attack, but Gakpo feels like that sort of electric, creative spark. Uh, so I would very much encourage people to keep an eye on him. Uh, rounding out the really quickly, as I said, lots of centre-backs. My guess would be it's Nathan Akay and Urien Timber, uh, partnering Virgil van Dijk. Maybe it's Matthias Delict, Maybe it's Stefan de Vrij. They're very big names. It would be big to leave them out, but there's plenty of talent. Uh, Jesper Stilesson likely to start in goal, though it's been Remco Pasvier more recently. Either way, the Dutch are plenty deep uh, from back to front.
1: All right. Taylor, I look forward to the Dutch fans in Qatar chanting, We are the abundance of centre-backs!
2: Yeah! Well, I think Buffalo Bills is probably... That's why I found them a simpler one, too. But Vorstapper (laughs) uverloed There you go. They can chant that one.
1: Uh, All right, nearly time to wrap this gosh darn thing up. But first, I want a very specific prediction from each of you. And I'd like to know whether you think your team is going to go through to the knockout stages. Uh, Joe... The hosts, a lot of pressure on them to go through to knockout stages. I'd like to know whether you think they're going to do that and your prediction for this team, please.
3: Yeah, they're not going to do that. But (laughs) I do think they're going to put on some some fun performances in the group stage. I think they'll be better to watch than most. And I, I do think they'll have some good moments. And that does relate to my VSP, so my very specific prediction, which gives us sort of a thing to watch for for this team, right? Even if it's wrong, hopefully this will give people an idea of what makes this team different and unique relative to the rest of the teams at the World Cup. It comes back to Akram Afif, who I think will nutmeg at least two players in the group stage. So that could be one against Ecuador and one against Senegal, the Netherlands. It doesn't matter. Two players over the course of the group stage, enough of their attacks funnel through Afif, and he is technically skilled enough to pull off something like that, not just on accident, but but because he's legitimately trying to clown someone. I think Afif's going to be important. I think he... I don't know how Qatar will affect things and the fact that he plays for Qatar. If he was playing for a team like Ecuador or a team like Senegal or the Netherlands, he could be a breakout player in this competition. I'm not sure how the narrative will change because he is uh, playing for Qatar, but either way, Afif's going to nutmeg two players in the group stage at least, and Qatar probably not going to make it out of the group. All right, Graham. Ecuador, are they making it out?
4: I don't think so, but looking at the fixtures as they unfold, so Ecuador start their 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 campaign against Qatar. I think there's a good chance they win that game. Then they've got Netherlands, you would say they probably lose that game. I I think they I think they will go out in the group stage Ecuador, but I do think they'll be competitive up until that final game against Senegal. That that is a prediction of mine is that that game will be a decider in terms of who, which of those two teams is going to go through the last Ooh. last 16. I do think Senegal are probably the stronger of the two teams there. But I do think there'll be a lot riding on that game. And uh, my very specific prediction for Ecuador is I'm going to say they will score at least two counter-attack goals at this World Cup. Now, that obviously doesn't sound a lot, but it's a, it's a tournament where Ecuador will probably play three games, possibly four at the most if we're being realistic. And so two goals in, in, in three games is, is, is still a decent hit rate. And I, and I think they're going to look to strike teams in quick transition. I think that's going to be very much the profile of, of their game plan. Um, so, yeah, two counterattack goals as, as my VSP for Ecuador as they just about go Pam, forgive me
2: if stage. you've already said this. Uh, I've tried to keep notes on everything. If they are counterattacking Ecuador, if they're playing on the break, are they more likely to sort of funnel it wide and then attack with speed and then look central? Okay, so they're not going to try yeah. to build through the middle through like one central striker.
4: They can build through the middle mm-hmm. with uh, Moises Caicedo. He he is capable of, of of doing that. They do have a centre forward, Estrada. Michael Estrada is likely to to play as the as the centre forward in in that team. Um, so I guess they could do that, but in terms of what I've seen from mm-hmm. them and all the games that I've watched, and also some of the other um, analysis and, and preview pieces that I've read, yes, they very much like to funnel the ball out to Estebanan on the left mm-hmm. and Castillo on the right, and then they will work it back into the middle, pl- or or feed it into Plata, and he will attack the half space and get a, a shot away. That tends to be the. I the think power that is a very
2: play. good prediction, and I would add, I would I would not be surprised if one of those uh, counter attacking goals comes against the Dutch. For that reason, for them attacking out wide, whereas the Dutch, I think, are going to have numbers more central to limit counter-attacking opportunities. And it's a great shout, Graham.
1: Ooh. VSP amendment. Oh, I like okay. it. Add it to the bill. Very good. Um, my VSP for Senegal is goal-related. Um, by the way, I'll say... I think this team, as I mentioned, is very talented, has has tournament experience, has a very good manager. I think they're going to get four or five games in this tournament. I think they come out of this group first or second, probably second, uh, and the way things work out. They've got the Netherlands in their first game. They're going to need a result against Qatar in the second game, which I think they'll get. And Ecuador, as Graham mentioned in the third game, Ecuador very much capable of a surprise, as Graham mentioned. But I think Senegal will get the points or point they need from that last game as well. My prediction, VSP prediction, is that they won't score any more than two goals in any given game. They have a very pragmatic manager, as I have mentioned, a quite practical approach. They're averaging around one goal per game in their last five games. They are capable of great attacking moments, and we saw that in AFCON, of course. They don't tend to blow opponents out, and I don't think they're going to get the opportunity to do so at this tournament. They did score three goals on two occasions in the last AFCON, but it was against Equatorial guinea and Burkina faso um with all due respect this is on a slightly different level here so that's my prediction no more than two goals possibly some one goal wins for senegal in this one taylor last but not least sir the Netherlands and your yeah v- they better game. make
2: it out. Uh, I I would say they they will top this group uh, or very much should. And I think uh, one play I've already mentioned. I have a prediction for Cody Gakbo uh, will have at least one highlight reel moment when he seems to be contained and then somehow escapes multiple defenders to launch a counterattack. And and not just like gets past one and then somebody kind of lunges at him last second and he evades that. I mean he has three people within five yards. And it's like they it's like Tasmanian devil. There's like a, a bunch of smoke and legs and kicking and then somehow out comes Cody Gakpo with the ball. Maybe not quite that literally, but that's the type of moment that he tends to thrive upon, I think, is like the diffusion of responsibility he tends to capitalize. So there's going to be one of those from Gakpo. And then another one, uh, I think Denzel Dumfries will get at least one assist in the group stage, likely like the FIFA assist of dribbling in and then squaring to somebody uh, like six yards out who just taps it in because he is so important to this team has been so important to Inter Milan. And I think that that move and him sort of functioning as the Akra Fakimi replacement has really helped his career, obviously at club level, but even with the Dutch, he is just definitely going to be the right wing back. I think Devin Wrench is the deputy, but I think Denzel Dumfries, as long as he's fit, will play every single minute of every single game or close to it. Um, And, can attack by like uh, going narrow and being more central, but makes those overlaps, can do a lot of like one-two quick touch passing, can cross the ball, can cut it back, and I think we'll see plenty of attacks coming down that right-hand side with Daley Blint maybe being slightly more conservative on the left. So I think Denzel Dumfries gets an assist in the group stage. Cody Gakpo does some ridiculous things in the group stage. The Dutch make it out somewhat comfortably.
1: Excellent stuff. Taylor, when you're at a restaurant, do you usually know what you're going to have straight away or do you sort of mull it over and you've got a couple of options? I ask because you've given us two VSPs and two nicknames. It's, it's like you just want to have the best of all worlds.
2: I just like to come prepared, my friend. I also didn't feel like <laughs> uh, stabbing at a uh, Dutch pronunciation that might also not be the correct translation might not be the best way to start. You never want to start murky. Buffalo Bills, I think, tells mm. people exactly what you need to know about the Dutch right away. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And and yet you did take that stab. Hey, we admire you Gotta take stabs, it. baby. Gotta take stabs. Why not?
1: You do, uh, yeah. In this <laughs> context, uh, thank you very much, gents, for this World Cup Group A preview. Hey, Joe, you know what this means? You know what this means on the feed tomorrow. What comes? What comes after Group A? Huh, huh, huh?
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, um, um, mm-hmm. uh, ah. Yeah. Group Group B. Group B. Big one. Final answer. Group B.
1: Big one indeed coming next. Maybe oh, not tomorrow. Uh, depends when you're uh, uh, listening to this in the time space continuum. But it will be next on the feed. But for now, Taylor Rockwell, a credit to the entire organisation. You are sir, as always. Thank you very much. Bedunked. <laughs> Graham Rothman, thank you very much, sir.
4: Thank you, Ryan Bailey. And
1: Joe Lowry, bedonked to you. Bedunk, donk, donk.
3: Yeah, I like that we say bedunked now. you to everyone. Indeed. Bedunked to all listeners. Thank you very
1: much for joining us on this one. We'll be back on the feed with group B very shortly, but for now. Bye.
2: Smash!